I could have avoided getting ripped off by doing proper due diligence, I think. And I was the guy who kept saying, no, 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 no. If I'm taking their money, they're going to get a great product. If you're at home or if you're abroad, there is illegal labor everywhere that you go. Hi, everybody. My name is Kelly Martin, and you are listening to the fourth episode of Making It Work, made possible by FedEx. This is not another podcast just about people running a successful business. With the help of real entrepreneurs who've been through the highs and the lows, we uncover what it's really like to quit the nine to five and go it alone. In this episode, we're discussing the realities of working with factories abroad. And what do you sacrifice first? Quality or profit margin? Asking the questions is Tom Scallon. Buying local is in vogue, whether it's for environmental reasons, to keep Americans in jobs, or to engender that fuzzy feeling of good old national pride. The pressure for manufacturers to stamp that made-in-USA mark onto their goods has never been greater. But companies still continue to outsource production abroad. And the entrepreneurs I spoke to who did import their goods were, in general, pretty unapologetic about it. The way they see it, the idea that US-made products are better than something made in China, India or Turkey is outdated and frankly untrue. Besides, old-fashioned notions such as these don't help them hit their bottom line. The thing that kept on coming up time and time again was that they aspire to order everything from US factories. I mean, why wouldn't they? But until those factories can guarantee an acceptable quality to a reasonable timeline, at an attractive price point, they were forced to manufacture at least some of their products abroad. Brian's a great example of this. He's founder of Penny Lux Shoes. They make footwear customised with real pennies attached to the sole. If you ask him about it, he says they're made for the American dream chaser who wants to wear their luck. The thing with Brian is that when it comes to making his shoes, he's found his luck not in the US, but elsewhere. The reason why I make my shoes in Mexico is because when I when I initially started this, I didn't know exactly where to start. And I knew that uh, in Leon, Mexico, they made some of the best shoes in the world that rivaled Italy. And knowing that, I decided to pack a bag, uh, fly out to Mexico and knock on doors of factories to see who would make my shoes. And so I did that for a few months. I went through a lot of factories. I got ripped off a few times uh, and eventually found the right one. And four years later, here we are producing. Um, it was important for you to actually go and fly there and meet people face to face. I didn't know how else to do it. So, yeah. And this it feels like I'm not sure if I'm right, but it just kind of feels like in this industry, it's like the big dogs control it. You know, um, you've got to be extremely well funded. Um, you have to have a stellar reputation in order to really tap into it. Um, people told me I was crazy to start a shoe company that I'd never make it. Uh, everyone, everyone and their mother um, <laughs> told me that. And people in the industry told me the same thing. But, you know, somehow I, I managed to do it. And I think it is because I, I went down there and met people face to face. You pick up a phone and call them. It's like anyone can do that. But if you're there present showing them like, hey, I have an intention of working with you. Um, this is what I'm trying to do. Are you willing to, to work with us? I think it does go a long way. So you spoke to people, you shook their hand, but you say you still got ripped off a couple of times. Yeah, I did. 
On one occasion, I spent a few months out there developing a shoe, sourcing all the stuff, um, you know, driving back and forth, all the expenses. It was a few shoes. And I finally am ready to start producing. And just so happens that there's a show, a wholesale show taking place. And I decided to go to the show just to see what was out there. And while I'm going through the show, my factory had a booth present. And they had all of my products that I had designed and put my heart and soul into on display, selling them to everybody else. (laughs) And so it was extremely disheartening and I had to start from scratch again. Um, Yeah, that was uh, that was brutal. That was brutal, but kept going. Did you go up to them and ask them why they stole your design? You know, I did. And I think one of their explanations was, well, we use a different color stitch. It's not exactly the same. (laughs) And for me, it was just a joke. It was comical. Um, But it was just kind of like, it's the nature of the beast. Like in this industry, it's, you know, it's hard to protect something that, uh, that is unique. Um, Because the second you come out with it, everyone and their mother is trying to do the same thing, especially if it works. Could you have avoided getting ripped off by doing proper due diligence? Um, I could have avoided getting ripped off by doing proper due diligence, I think. Um, but because I was producing abroad, I think it's a lot harder. You don't really know. And it's not like everyone's on Google and Yelp when you're you know, in Mexico or China. or I mean, I don't know about China, at least not in Mexico. So it's, it's kind of hard. I think you can, depending on where you're producing. You just got to know the the terrain. And I didn't. I didn't know. Um, But, you know, I figured it out eventually. What about size of your order? Did you sense that people didn't want to do business with you because you weren't big enough? Yes. Yes. That's part of what I what I'm saying that I think was the advantage when you're small and you don't have the resources like all the other big companies and you're calling them or sending them an email saying, hey, I want you to make my shoes. It's super easy for them to blow you off. You know, it's like, why am I going to spend the time of day to make, you know, 100 pairs of shoes or whatever? I think that that's that's when you when you're able to kind of when you're starting out, you have to sell people. And this is one of the things that I feel like some entrepreneurs don't understand because whether it was this company or the other company, when you're so small, you have to convince people that you're going to make it, you know? And if you're going in there saying like, yeah, I'm going to do 10,000 units in the first order or this, that, like people are going to know you're full of crap, right? But you have to like sell them on the dream. You have to convince them. And maybe the word selling them is, a, is the wrong word to use, but you have to convince them like, hey, this is going to work. This is going to be big. Like, I'm going to make it. Like, you need to produce my stuff. You need to help me. Uh, once I get this going, we're going to make money. You have to sell them because uh, the reality is not a lot of factories are interested in producing, you know, a dozen pairs of shoes or, or a few dozen pairs of shoes. You have to figure out a way to convince them that you're going to be the next big thing. And I think that that's something that I was, I was good at because I was passionate about it and I loved what I'm doing. Like, I love what I'm doing. This is, there's nothing else that I'd rather be doing. And I think that that oozed over uh, onto the factory. I've heard you speak, Brian, and I know that you're very passionate and, and very persuasive. But did you sense that maybe they were a little bit, yeah, yeah, we've heard it all before? 
No, no, at, at least not with me. There's, I think there's two types of entrepreneurs. The first one is the fake it till you make it. And the other one is just genuine, like having a genuine approach and laying it all out there saying, Hey, look, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. I'm not a big guy, but I promise you I'm going to be, and this is how I'm going to do it. And I would love to work with you. And I think that there, I think that in today's day, like we've kind of lost sight of that. Like everyone needs to buy followers, right? You have to buy followers. You always have to pretend to be something bigger than what you are in order to, to try and advance. And I don't think that that works in my experience. I don't think that that's effective. You know, uh, if you go on our Instagram, we have, I think it's two twenty two hundred followers. Um, we've been around for four years. We follow 1300 or something like that. And it's all organic. We're not trying to fake that we, you know, we know more than, than who we know or anything of that sort. And I think that that goes a really long way. Um, I think that that's something that might be lost in our culture that we need to like tap back into. And I think that that, that goes a long way in business because people see through that. Was it a surprise to you that you would have to convince manufacturers to work with you? I, I mean, you're paying them, right? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Should be the other way around. So the people that are more than willing to take your money are the ones that you should be weary about, right? Um, they're the ones that are going to charge you a lot to develop the product to, you know, there's a million and one ways to get taken in this business. And I think that the hard ones, the, the ones that you really should work with and the ones that you want to work with are the ones that you have to convince because I'm small. I was small. I'm still small. Small and proud. Small and very proud. Very proud. It was really tough on Brian to have his design copied like that. I mean, you hear of big companies getting their intellectual property stolen all the time. But ripping off a shoe startup from Texas, well, that's something else. I guess the one positive of encountering that crook at the trade show was that if he didn't know it already, his shoes are great. Of course, that doesn't mean anyone will agree to actually make them. Brian was clear that to get factories on his side, to get them to produce that initial order, he had to sell them a dream and convince manufacturers that his tiny shoe company had, well, a soul. This uphill struggle to get taken seriously can be a problem for every bootstrapping business. Take T-Van, he's CEO and co-founder of Save My Sales, based out of Massachusetts, but cut his entrepreneurial teeth making and selling anti-theft bicycles. He reckoned that after working as a product manager for a huge fashion house, getting factories to make his products for his own company would be a breeze but soon realized that when you're placing orders with the biggest country in the world, size really does matter. I think as a small manufacturer, when you're just getting started, it's really hard to get factories to work on your schedule and within your budget. So I started working with factories in my corporate job uh, right out of college uh, at Abercrombie & Fitch. I was manufacturing hundreds of thousands of articles of clothing every year. And my job as a product manager, I didn't really see any of the money changing hands. I just, you know, would call five factories a day and tell them to do things and they would do them. And I thought it was because I was a good negotiator. And I thought it was because I had a good relationship with my factories. And fast forward four years from then, when I finally had my own business that, you know, barely had any money in the bank and was trying to get my first couple of deals with factories, 
So that was the number one challenge is just getting, getting people to care about this small little project you're working on. The second piece would probably just be, um, there is a, a language, language barrier and a cultural barrier that you have to deal with. You know, what might take one simple email uh, if you're working domestically or with someone nearby it might take seven emails if you're working with a factory uh, in China, not just because of the language barrier, but just because of the time difference and just making sure that you want to, you cross your T's and dot your I's. You might go back and forth a few times just to make sure that every single thing that uh, you're planning is going to come to fruition. So when you say getting deals with foreign <clears throat> manufacturers, sounds like a recording contract or something. So you're saying they really don't want to work with the small guys. They just want to work with the big fish. Right. And part of securing a manufacturing partnership with a factory that does a lot of volume and for that reason has maintains good quality standards and treats its, treats its uh, workers right is selling them the dream that you are, that although you're small now, you're going to be big. So for all the manufacturers we've worked with, we've had to show them projections and pitch them a story on who we are as a business, why it's growing fast and why they're the orders that we're placing with them are going to continue to grow. There are plenty of small factories, smaller factories with lower standards that perhaps we could have worked with without doing any of that, but the product would have suffered. So yes, most many of these factories don't want to work with you unless you are doing, or that you have a reasonable path to do hundreds of thousands of units uh, within the first couple of years. How do you ensure the product arriving from China or wherever to your doorstep is of the quality you agreed with the factory? It starts with working with factories that have a high quality standard. So understanding what the factories are manufacturing and using those existing products as a proxy for what might come out if you were to work with them. And then for the initial runs of a product that you're making, having someone from your team on the ground watching those first units come off the line and then making sure that that factory, teaching the factory what quality review looks like the first time. So there's plenty of little items like that that you can train the factory on. And then making sure that they're adhering to that standard every time they manufacture your bikes. Because if they're working with a hundred other bike brands, they might forget, they might forget what that process is. And so re reminding them, hey, you got to check these 20 things when these things come off the line uh, is important. I mean, how subjective is the quality and how willing are they to please? Well, I think what I'm saying is how watertight is the contract that you have with factories? I think the more volume you're doing, the more watertight your contracts are. There have been plenty of times where we have had QA issues and I have many friends who have ongoing QA issues with their factories for the same reason. And knowing, sort of doing the cost benefit analysis on, is this something that I need to bring up with my factory and I need to make a big stink about um, and slap them on the wrist? Or is it something that I can handle when the units arrive in my warehouse? Or is it something that I can personally handle on the factory floor when the units are coming off? So pick, picking your battles is, 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 I think, what we've learned to do. It sort of sounds like the contract isn't really worth the paper it's written on. And what's more important is a good relationship and a shake of the hand. I think at the relatively low volumes that we've worked at as a Kickstarter brand, that's true. The reason I have visited every year has been because there's something called Chinese New Year, which happens in February. And it's essentially when every factory in China shuts down many manufacturers are rushing to get units out the door before that happens. 
to make sure that they have product for spring sales. And essentially every year that that's come around, we've been rushing to put out units before the factory shuts down. And our timeline has always sort of slid and we've been told that we're not going to get units out in time. So that's usually when I've booked my trip to, <laughs> to go shake hands and eat and drink with our factory owners uh, to make sure that we get the deliveries we need. And it's pretty much always worked out in our favor because, because of that relationship and because of that FaceTime. I heard that in our interviews a lot. Rather than firing off emails or chatting through a shaky Skype connection, jumping on a plane and meeting suppliers face-to-face is the best way to minimize those inevitable quality assurance issues. Two of the entrepreneurs I spoke to had already planned a trip to Italy to visit factories, strictly for business purposes, of course. The importance of doing research, and if possible, meeting manufacturers in person, is echoed by Dana, whose Philadelphia-based company Anarono makes laundry for women who've undergone mastectomies. Since her business is for-profit social enterprise, in an industry that always attracts controversy, whether it's sweatshops or fast fashion, she doubles down on her message of doing proper due diligence. When you're looking for your external partners and relationships, and that is likely because you need to make a product or you need to manufacture something, due diligence is utmost importance. Um, I've been in my industry for a very long time. I've been in fashion and, and product development for my entire career. So I have built incredible relationships around the world through my professional work experience. And those were the first people I reached out to when I was starting my business. And a network is really, really important because manufacturing is a sticky, sticky business. And if you don't know what you're doing and you don't know who you're working with and you haven't vetted them, they can put you out of business because they will make mistakes. They will ship off schedule. They could damage your product. They could send you $100,000 worth of inventory that's wrong. And all of those things are detriments to your business. And I cannot stress enough that you do your homework, you do your investigation, you shake the hands of the people that you are working with. Even if they're in another country, you have got to find a way to get on a plane and go and get your boots on the ground and see what and how they're manufacturing. This is a very big world out there and there is still a lot of illegal activity in, man- in manufacturing bases. And you have to trust the partners that you're working with because you can get yourself in a lot of trouble if you don't do those simple steps up front. Is this specific to working with partners who aren't in the US? Would you have the same problems if you manufactured things in in your own country? It doesn't matter where you manufacture. If you're at home or if you're abroad, there is illegal labor everywhere that you go. And it doesn't matter if you're in the United States. It doesn't matter if you're in Asia, South America, Europe. If you don't vet that partner, that partner can use illegal labor. They can use um, undocumented employees. They could have bad business practices. That does not matter where you are. That happens around the world. And it is important that you know the signs or that you have the ability to pop in and show a presence because the more often you're there, the more often you see things, the less likely they have the ability to do something that could hurt your business. When I didn't do the necessary due diligence, I missed my uh, kickoff and my launch date for my business by over six months. 
um, my factory that I had a very long relationship with, uh, that I had worked with in past careers and had moved my startup business to them. They, at the very last minute, told me that they moved my manufacturing to another factory. And in doing so, I was going to miss the delivery that was before Chinese New Year. And I got pushed into another facility because they made the decision to do so. I didn't have enough time to get over to the new facility. And when I got my goods in for my launch, they were not the goods I approved with my old facility, meaning that I had fit issues, I had quality issues, and I had to manage all of that and correct product once I received it because I didn't get on a plane, I didn't get over there and say, let's get a new sample from this new facility, let's make sure everything is exactly as it was before. I, I trusted that they would do that on my behalf. And um, that trust ran very, very thin at the end. And I had to end up leaving that facility and moving into another one. When you're working um, with, with other companies to supply your products, is it an inevitability there are going to be problems? I will always tell anybody in a product manufacturing business to expect a problem. If you are looking and you find no problem, you haven't looked hard enough because part of my job is putting out fires. Part of my job is fixing problems. And they're just, it's the nature of the business. It's the nature of creating something, manufacturing something, shipping something. All of that goes into this entire atmosphere of so many people putting their fingers and their hands on a product that you're trying to develop. Somebody is likely to make a mistake, highly likely. So you have to keep your eyes open. You have to be focused on all of the minor details because that one minor detail that gets skipped could ruin everything. When you're working with factories abroad, can language and cultural differences uh, be a problem? I have been in the fashion industry since the beginning of my career, and I am lucky that I have experience with many, many countries that manufacture product. And I have to say that every country I work with has a cultural challenge or a cultural difference from one to the other. And you really have to understand and know how to navigate that because you can't assume if you've been working with China for 10 years that you go to South America and South Americans work like the Chinese. You can't assume that the South Americans work like Europeans or that Europeans work like Middle Eastern factories. Everybody's got their little kinks and cultural differences of the way that you communicate, the way that you respect one another, the expectation out of a business relationship. Um, so by finding people that are in your business that have worked in those countries or even potentially talking to some of their current clientele or their current customers, especially if you're new to manufacturing, especially if you're new to the industry, talk to as many people as you can because there are going to be cultural differences and you really need to know them as the business owner of how to behave, what to expect and how to execute amongst those boundaries. Do you ever feel a responsibility to move your manufacturing to the US or do you think you've got a greater responsibility towards your customers for creating the best quality product at the best price? I think when it comes to developing and creating a product, you have to get the best product with the best quality for the best price. And that's going to dictate where you can make something. 
I make underwear and the U.S. is not good at making underwear. We don't make any of the components that go into underwear. We don't develop our own lace. We don't develop our own elastic or trims and hooks and eyes and all of these pieces that go into a bra. So for me, manufacturing in the U.S. actually creates a good product, but at a very premium cost because of the labor. Now, if I was a furniture designer and I made wood furniture, to make it in the U.S. would seem ideal because we have wood, we have good carpentry labor, and the product is heavy and needs to get shipped somewhere. So you have to really take into account what you are selling, what you are building, and how do you get that product to your customer and the highest quality and the best price, because that's the stress that we experience as the business owners and as the creators. And you've got to find the right partners and the right countries that have the right skill sets that can support what it is that you're trying to build. It's all good and well criticizing companies for not making products in their own country. But like Dana said, if the expertise don't exist, then you have no choice but to outsource production abroad. Our next entrepreneur, David, does have a choice. He makes a special kind of wheel designed for tough terrain and will always manufacture products locally if he can, as well as avoiding paperwork, tariffs and other hassle you get with importing. Keeping production close to home allows him to keep a close eye on what factories are doing. That doesn't mean his wheels are always made in the US though. If he can get better quality from somewhere else, he won't hesitate to cheat on good old Uncle Sam. Well, the what to manufacture is pretty easy. Uh, the where is a nightmare because there's two different main components. Ah, let's call it three. Number one, everybody knows cost, okay? Where is it going to cost the cheapest to you? Number two, quality, which really should be number one and is number one. Finding the place to make the product that you want at a cost that you can sell it for is the big game. You can find a million people and make the product you want. Can they make it at a cost that you can sell it for? That's a whole different game. The third thing is, can you communicate? It doesn't do you any good if you've got the world's greatest ball bearing factory and everything is in you know some language you don't understand and you're not able to negotiate, you're not able to place the order correctly, you're not able to ask pertinent questions or probative questions about, hey, would this work with my blah, blah, blah. Um, there's translation software. I already know all that stuff, but it's lost in translation is, is really an apt term. So for my company specifically, I started out making the base thing, the very first thing that I knew I could produce, I produced it locally because I needed absolute control. I needed immediate response to problems and things like that, you know, where I had to know that every single step of the thing was something I knew about and was kind of overlooking. And if there was going to be a fire, I had to put it out while it was tiny before it got big. So for me, producing locally in the beginning was the only choice. It was after all this time and having gone all over the world, I can say producing in the U.S. is still the best idea. Um, when you're producing locally, if you can, it makes everything flow really well. Your shipping costs, your carrying time, all of the pieces flow really well, okay? Our services inside the United States work really, really well. Timing, all that stuff. We don't deal with ports and fees and all this stuff. So 
Producing locally is virtually always better. And even in the long run, even if you can find better cost and find better quality, then the time to get it and the reject rate or the this or the catastrophe that happens that pushes the boat off a month and now your customer is just catastrophically PO'd at you. And so you end up having to lose this major customer because of this weird little anomaly that happened when Hurricane Hugo came through. That kind of stuff doesn't work most of the time. It's always about having the best of all three worlds where you're making it work with great communication with a great local supplier that you have an excellent relationship with. You know, you're the best customer to him and he's the best, you know, supplier to you. He's giving you a cost that you can absolutely positively make good money on and he's making good money at that rate too. And then finally, you've got quality. You've got that absolute nailed quality part that you're super duper proud of. I've gone everywhere. I, I've done business in China. I mean, we've gotten parts from all over the world in all different kinds of shapes, sizes, and colors. Generally speaking, what you hear is not true. Oh, China always makes crap, or this is always cheaper there. No, it's not that way, okay? Some of the best product I've ever gotten is out of China. And I, I still to this day order it because I really, really like it and it's really, really a good price. And I do not have a U.S. supplier for it. So in that particular case, there is no choice. I don't have a U.S. supplier. And this guy makes quality, quality, quality stuff. So I'm getting this incredible quality at a great price. Um I haven't had problems with tariffs or anything like that because the kind of things I'm buying are finished goods uh, and it hasn't seemed to affect us yet, but that could affect us. That could be one of those weird little things that where you're not domestic, all of a sudden, boom, a tariff shows up and smacks you in the face. It's like those kind of risks kind of pull the whole, hey, let's try and look for you know a global system where we've got all these moving parts and things like that. It's awesome if you can do it. And I make it work, but it is work. I have to have a translator. I have to have somebody in the middle who is over there who is my buddy. He is my advocate. He's my escrow company. He's that guy over there that on my behalf is acting and speaking the words that I'm saying in their language, in their culture, and in their method because methodology is very different all over the world. So if you're going to do it, you got to have all three things. You got to have great communication, either through a translator or whatever. You got to have great cost, where it really is cost. Both sides are making money because it doesn't work if one side's not making money because then they go out of business. Uh, and finally, you got to have that quality. And all, if you can get all three of those, the, that's what makes the decision for you, whether you're domestic or international. I produce everywhere. There's certain things I have to buy overseas, but by gosh, I get the best, best stuff in the world. How do you go about finding a manufacturer abroad? Okay, so we live in an awesome time where if you said, hey, I want to find a manufacturer that makes my plastic doodad, uh, let's say it's a square wheel, for instance, you go to the internet, you go out there on Kickstarter, you go out there on a lot of different things. And let me mention why Kickstarter. I went out on Kickstarter and said, hey, I have an idea to make the square wheel. The manufacturers are constantly looking through Kickstarter for people that make products because they go, I'm going to go offer my services to him. And they came running to me. But besides that, going to the Internet, there are 
lots of people who act as go-betweens, who will say, I will manufacture your product. I will do this. I'll be the go-between. There's rating systems out there that can help you cull through who's good, who's bad, things like that. But we found no lack of being able to find pretty much anything we wanted out there. It's a great world. There's a lot of really well-connected systems in the internet where if you type something in, you end up finding the root source or the guy who's going to be the conduit to that source pretty darn quickly. Do you ever have any communication problems when working with manufacturers in other countries? All right. So yes and no. Okay. In the purest sense, can I speak to these people and have them speak back to me, especially if I have an interpreter? Absolutely. Where I mentioned earlier, it's not really so much the communication, it's the method. We do things in a certain way here. You know, in my little niche world, there's certain things that I do. And one of those things is, oh, you uh, R&D at first, and then you do this, and then you get an invoice, and then you get a purchase order, and you do this, and you do that. Well, they may not do it that way. They may do things a little bit different than the way you do it. And that's where the stumbling blocks start to happen, is where an order gets completely messed up because you didn't check a box way back in the beginning. And you're like, well, why would I have done that way back in the beginning? I didn't even give you the graphic. And they're like, we don't care. We need to know way in the head because we reorder that material way back then rather than having it on stock. And you're like, oh my God, I didn't know you guys ordered the material to fill. I thought you guys already had it there. And it's that kind of stuff that drives you crazy. And it's It's not just that that works internationally, that's locally too, but it happens way more often on an international thing because the way they acquire their goods and the way services happen and the way people are hired and the way shifts come on and off is not always the same as what you're used to. So that's where I find the biggest barriers is communicating at the right time. Do you go out and visit the factories? Yes, Fortunately, I haven't had to be the one to go to any of the really far away ones. I do all the local ones. But yeah, I have a very direct connection with the people that own it and run it. Um, I want to go there. And what I say to everybody is I want to be the best customer you've ever had. You know, I'm not looking for you to kiss my butt. You're listening to Making It Work. Coming up. Get one person to buy it and then I'll get five more. And then I'll get 25. And then I'll get ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. Chances are their margins have gotten shrunk and shrunk and shrunk over time that their quality of their product has suffered. These guys are dangling half a million dollar orders in front of you. And it can make or break the company. Time for a little pop quiz. What do light bulbs, ink cartridges, and cell phones all have in common? Got it yet? They're all famous examples of things that have planned obsolescence. And if you don't know what that is, it's basically when companies deliberately give their products defects, so eventually you'll have to go out and buy a new one. Your light bulbs will burn out, your ink cartridges will dry up, and well, don't get me started on my cell phone's sucky battery life. Planned obsolescence has always fascinated me, and I was wondering how easy it was to fall into the trap of selling something that was just too good. After all, if everything lasted forever, then the repeat customer would cease to exist. Let's bring back Dana, the one who makes the laundry for breast cancer survivors. I asked her how she finds the delicate balance between quality and profit margin. 
Wow. Quality and profit margin in manufacturing is um, just as much of an art as it is a science. And I say that because depending on what you're building, you have to understand profit margins. You have to understand what you can afford, especially if you're stuck in a box of a specific price point that you are trying to attract. Um, and you have to build a product based upon that price point. I think the world has become very clever in understanding the value of product uh, because most products for a very long time were so inflated because it was easy to inflate the costs. And now things have gotten a little bit tougher as we see some major American retailers have to mark down their products 40, 50, 60, 70% just to sell them. And you can see the quality of those products go down as you think you're receiving and getting more and more deals. And as a small business, you're up against all of those challenges because you need to make money to stay in business. We cannot make our product and make it for free. Um, it's not the way the world works. So you have to really determine if you want a high quality item and that requires a three-time markup or a four-time markup or a two-time markup, what is that going to do to your customer base and what is that going to do to your business model? And um, I start... Uh, from the top down, actually, I look at it in the reverse. Because I've been in the industry for a very long time and I've been building product for a long time, I know if I want a bra that retails at $30, I have to hit a certain price point in order to make that bra $30. If it's anything more than that and I do not perceive the value of being more than $30, I have to cancel the development. Um, or find a new facility or find another way to make the product. Obviously, quality is very subjective and you have to make minor adjustments to your products to make them affordable, right? But does it make you angry when other companies are selling what you would consider inferior products for the same price? Oh, absolutely. I think when you do your competitive landscape and you do your competitive research and you see yourself building a premium product, and retailing it for the same thing that somebody is making an inferior product. It's challenging because when you start up, especially when you're a smaller company, you have more room to put money into your product. Whereas if your competitor is a really large company, chances are their margins have gotten shrunk and shrunk and shrunk over time that their quality of their product has suffered because of that because they need to make so much money for their operating costs and you can run a little bit leaner. And when you put that out into the world and people come back at you or consumers come back and they say, oh, I love your product, but it's just way too expensive. And you want to be able to justify why you're making a really quality product for a good price that keeps you in business when the consumers are very much used to, especially to, in today's era, something that is inferior, even though they have brand equity, they're still buying an inferior product for the same price. So the pressure is on the small business or the pressure is on the person that creates the new product to show to the world, this is why I'm doing this. And this is why ethical sourcing means something to me. This is why organic and sustainable products mean something to me. And all of these things cost a little bit more money than just buying the generic off the shelf materials and usage that other companies are using that have been in business for a long time. 
does it ever enter your mind that if the quality of your underwear is too good, then people will never come back to buy more? There are problems. When you make a really good product and that product lasts a long time, you really stretch out your return buyer consumer base. And <laughs> and that's a, that's something you have to consider. Um, not that you want to make a, a worse product because you don't, but you might think, oh gosh, people should come back between three and six months. But when we have return customers coming back a year or a year and a half later because their bra has finally worn out and they want a new one, you may not have that bra in stock. You may not have what they want in stock because it's been so long. And um, it's something that you're proud of, but at the same time can also cause a strain because uh, when you are making a good product, they don't have to come back so often to buy it. If quality is important to you and is important to your business model, that you absolutely do not risk it because you can tell the story of quality. You can show your customer why you might be a little bit more expensive because there are consumers that that means something to, and that is not something to steer away from or to be afraid of. You just have to help explain it to your customers. So that way you can really build a good quality that's better for the environment and better, better for our society and better for all of those reasons because of that. I communicate quality to my customers on the belief that they deserve the best and that I know what the best looks like and I want them to feel their best. So to sell them all of the things that I want the bra to do for them, how I want them to be comfortable, how I want them to feel beautiful, how I want them to love themselves in their own skin. I can't do that if I don't deliver on that. If I told them all of those things, but I sent a very bad bra with itchy materials and poor fit and bad quality, nobody would ever believe my marketing. And that is damaging to your brand development and to the brand awareness that you are building. So if you're going to say it, you have to back it up. The crop of entrepreneurs I interviewed for this podcast are all in the business of producing and selling really high quality products. I know everyone says their what have you is the best, but really handmade leather shoes, high-end lingerie, unstealable bikes. These are some classy entrepreneurs. To be honest with you, we could have done with interviewing a couple of people that manufactured sporks or lighters or phone cases. Anything to get inside that pilot high, sell it cheap style of business. But the best we've got is David, the guy who makes the wheels and the one we'll finish up with. He says he has never and will never make anything of inferior quality. But if you've got deep pockets, he may be able to compromise just a little bit. We had to bleep out the name of the store he did the deal with, which is But all you have to know is that it doesn't get much bigger than I bet it hasn't been too long since you've been to a Okay, enough of that. Let's get on with the story. Here's what happened to us specifically at I make a wheel that costs $70 for a set. They wanted a complete skateboard that sold for $39. There was not a chance in heck that I was going to be able to produce world-class urethane out of a world-class mold and produce all of that stuff. At, I couldn't even make the box for it to go into for 39 bucks, for Christ's sake. Um, and it was like, well, no, we cannot do this. We cannot sell to them because 
we cannot put out a quality product at that price point. So we had to try. And we started going out there and trying different formulas and trying different things. And I was the guy who kept saying, no, 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 no. And everybody would keep coming back to me saying, Dave, it's They don't expect this. And I would say, I don't care. It has to be perfect. I don't care where it is. If I'm taking their money, they're going to get a great product. If I cannot make a great product, it is not going in that store because I cannot risk losing the customers. I cannot risk the bad mouthing of some lion out there who decides to destroy my company because his kid got a crappy skateboard. So I went out there and I found good enough. And that was very hard for me to swallow and take, but I knew it was good enough. I put a wheel out there in the marketplace that could sell on a complete skateboard for $39. Everybody was making money at that price point. I was producing it overseas and it wasn't as good as my real wheels, we'll say, but for the child's market, if any professional had taken those wheels off of that little kid's board and put them on his pro board and ridden them, he wouldn't have had, I would not have had to apologize. They were that good. So they were good enough for a pro to ride. So they definitely were good enough for all my wheels are even better than those. What a pro would just go crazy for, but it was good enough and I had to settle and it killed me to settle for that formula because I knew my other stuff was so much faster, so much grippier, so much better. But you know what? It was still really, really good. It was still so much better than any other product out there. So I compromised. I had to let it go to a lower quality. I had to let it go. Uh, certain items, you know, had to, I had to cringe a little bit. But it was okay. It made it where it was still good enough. And that's normally not how I operate. Good enough is not good enough. It has to be stellar. But sometimes you got to lower your standards to good enough. When do you have to lower your standards? When, when, comes when, when well, that's a great question. You know, these guys are dangling half a million dollar orders in front of you. And it can make or break the company for a quarter or a month or a year. And when you get those kind of opportunities put in front of you and you're like, my God, one sale could make the company for the year. So I got the money to do all these other fun things. That's when you bite the bullet. Now, remember, in the beginning, I, I refused to do it in the beginning. I, for all the years we were available, we were never in wouldn't go there because I knew I could not get the wheel to that level. But I, there was a time where I'd gotten the tooling good enough to where I could send it to China and still get a good wheel out of it. I knew I could do that. And that's when the tide turned to where, all right, I can, I had to keep the quality high because my name was everything. If you look out there, I am five-star rated everywhere. I give everybody more than they expected. Now I can turn it down a little bit on a kid's board and just give them still great, but it's great in that it's good enough. Has it occurred to you that if the quality of your product is too good, then it will last forever and no one will ever buy any more? You, you have no idea how often I hear that. <laughs> it's too good, David. You're making it too good. You're done it. Too bad. There's no such thing as too good. I don't care. If it lasts too long, 
I'll get it back another way. Karma, I don't know what you call it. It never happens that way. It never happens where, gee, it's so good that everybody bought it once and they never bought it again. Bull crap. They told all their friends how absolutely amazing it was. And I sold 20 times more to those guys rather than the repeat market to one guy, you know, by building in functional obsolescence. Nah, that's not how we work. And hey, it's working. I don't know. After you sell it to everyone and their friends, you might run out of customers. Well, but the thing is, my product does run out. It does wear out over time. Everything does. I last about 15% longer. And I always said, they'll buy it once because it's weird. They'll buy it twice because it's the best wheel they ever had in their life. I just got to get them to buy it once. Once they buy it once, they will never buy another regular wheel again, ever. You cannot go backwards. It's that good of a product. There are different qualities of product, right? How do you feel about companies making inferior products and saying they're the best on the market? It's probably one of my biggest pet peeves because it diminishes the words that come out of my mouth when I say I am the best in the market. People say, oh, I've heard that before. Oh, I've heard, oh, it's a gimmick. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. It's like, wow, they've, they've taken the words away from you. It's like world's best coffee. You know, it's like, really? World's best? Everybody in the world tried it and they all said it was the best? I don't think so. It diminishes the marketplace, but it's a reality of life, okay? I'm one of those guys that says, I don't have to worry about that. I just have to get one person to buy it and then I'll get five more and then I'll get 25 and then I'll get ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. I have to put out a quality product. If I put out a quality product, they will come. But the behavior of other companies should tell you that you could make an inferior product and sell it for the same price. I absolutely have been approached with that. It's been proven to me that I can make an inferior product and sell it for the same price. And what I say is there's a tiny bit of magic in the middle that you've lost. When you give them more than they wanted, more than they ever thought their money was going to have, They love you for it. They talk about you. They defend you to the death, okay? When you give them what they paid for, they got what they paid for. Walk away. Go to the next one. But when you gave them more than what they asked for, a better experience than they ever thought anybody else had said, they fight with you tooth and nail. And you can't buy that with money. You can't buy that. You have to earn it. Quality to me is number one. You know, if I have to raise the price to keep the quality high, that's the way it goes. If I have to slim down the profit margin to keep the quality high, that's the way it goes. Quality leads the product, not anything else. Quality determines the price, not anything else. Coming up next time. You need to put yourself out there. You need to put yourself out there. And my thought was, they do not care about me. I'm going to buy a mailing list. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Nah, nothing works anymore. The only thing that works is genuine. Genuineness sells. I feel like online influencers are unauthentic. Yes, I feel like I'm not being told the whole truth. They just do a video and they're like, you guys, I found this amazing product. And I'm like, oh my God. That's it for this episode of Making It Work. We would love to know what you think, so remember to rate this podcast. And if you don't want to miss out on the next one, be sure to subscribe. It helps us out a lot. 
Thanks to our entrepreneurs, Brian Munoz, Tivana Moore, David Patrick, and Dana Donifrey for their advice. Making It Work is produced by Yoli Margri, written by Tom Scallon, and edited by Lars Blockenberg, with creative direction from Jeroen von Koenigshoven. Music by Fresh Big Mouth, who created this song with actual sounds from the FedEx Superhub in Memphis, Tennessee. This show is delivered to you by FedEx and presented by Tom Scallon and me, Kelly Martin. 